So the reading is from uh, the book of Mark, chapter 14 and verses 12 to 26. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, very good morning to you all. Uh, lovely to be with you and uh, to be looking at Mark's Gospel with you. And uh, what a great passage of Scripture this is. Shall we uh, just pray and ask God to help us as we come to his word? Father, we just thank you for the blessing of your word. Thank you for the blessing of your gospel. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we just pray that you would come and speak into our hearts. We pray that um, you would help us in understanding, in knowing more about the wonders and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, come and help by your spirit. Touch our hearts. Do us good, Lord. Grant us a blessing not because we deserve it, but because we need it, and because we ask for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark 14. We are, in this section, within 24 hours 
of the Lord Jesus Christ leaving this world. And uh, within those hours, his disciples would desert him. He would be left on his own to go to the cross. Now, I don't know how many of you drive a car. Uh, I guess most of you do. Um, But I wonder how many of you know what's under the bonnet. And not many of us do know that. One or two might. There's some clever clogs here. And uh, if you can imagine for a moment that being a Christian is a bit like driving a car, uh, then this morning... I want us to try and get under the bonnet, so to speak, and to see something more of the glory about how the gospel works. And uh, in doing that, actually, we'll see what changed these disciples, because as I say, within 24 hours, they're all gone. Jesus was alone. But shortly after that, the disciples were out there, and they preached, and they gave their lives. And one of these 12 men sitting here with the Lord Jesus, would be dead himself in not a very distant future because of his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The engine of our passage, if you like, is verse 24. This first part of the verse. This is my blood of the covenant. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning thinking about what that means. Um, But before we do that, um, there are a couple of other things to say about the lead-up to this Last Supper. And uh, the first thing is the preparation for it. This is verses 12 to 26. And uh, Jesus sends two disciples, who in fact I believe are Peter and John from the other Gospels, to go and prepare this venue. Now this may actually have been pre-arranged by the Lord Jesus. Um, Jesus may have planned this. We don't know, but whether he did or not, what is interesting is that none of the disciples knew where this venue was. And I think that's significant because Judas would shortly be leaving to go to betray Jesus. And Jesus had certain things to do at this Last Supper, and he had things to teach. And if you look at John's Gospel, there's a lot of big teaching that the Lord is to give. It's important that Judas doesn't get there too early. Judas doesn't know where um, this room is until he gets there. It may be that when Judas betrayed Jesus, they went to the upper room first. That could explain why a young man is in his pyjamas at the time that Jesus is arrested. He's just got a sheet around him. His name is John Mark. Some people think this was Mark's house. And that would explain why this guy ended up there with no clothes on hardly. In fact, he lost the sheet that he had. And it says he was naked. What's important about this, these two disciples go and um, Nick emphasised this when he read it. These things happen just as Jesus said. 
Now, there's something interesting about this. Jesus said, you will see a man carrying a jar of water. And you think, well, what's odd about that? <clears throat> well, actually, it was very odd. <laughs> because the men didn't carry the jars of water. Guess who did that? The women. The women would always be carrying the jars. To have a man carrying a jar, this was different. This was unusual. This is how the men would be sure they'd got the right man. But what do we learn? The disciples could have said, when Jesus sent them off, they said, you'll see a man carrying a jar. They could have said, Lord, what if we don't see him? Or what if? Do you ever have people say to you, what if? What if? What if this? What if that? Sometimes, you know, with God, we don't have to ask that question. We just have to trust what he says. And the wonderful thing is, it happens just as Jesus says. And Christian, you need to know that the Lord is in control of every situation, however mundane, whether that's a man carrying a water jar, or whether it's your job application, or what it is, God had his, has his finger on the situation. Everything happens according to God's word. In fact, we have it in verse 21 as well. Something similar. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. We can't be off that. It will always be like that. And we need to trust that and trust that God will do what he says. The second little thing to notice is what I've called participation in the, in the Passover uh, from verse 17 uh, down to 21. Because the disciples all partook of this. They got to this room, it was all furnished, got everything arranged, and uh, they had to kill a lamb, that had to be roasted, they had to get all that sorted. But... Um, it was a great privilege to be at this Passover. And it was a time of blessing. It was a time of food for Jewish people, the Passover was. It was a time of fellowship. And in fact, here, they were going to begin to share in the blessing of the new covenant that Jesus is going to introduce. Except... There is an exception, and that's Judas. Do you know, for the Jew, to actually go to somebody's house and have a meal was to enter into a re real relationship of friendship and trust. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the religious people complained about Jesus so much. He ate with publicans and sinners. The shame of it, to actually be friends with them to have a relationship with them. The psalmist wrote these words prophetically about this situation. Psalm 41, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. To break bread with someone and then do the dirty on them this is one of the lowest things you could do. 
And I want you to notice, you can read the other Gospels and compare this. Judas had his feet washed by the Lord Jesus. I mean, it's staggering that Jesus washed the disciples' feet at this time. But Judas had his feet washed, and Jesus said then, you're clean, but not all of you, because Judas was the exception. Judas participated in the meal. In fact, many people think Judas had the best seat in the house. If you look at the Gospels, people have worked out where people were sitting according to what happened. What some people think is this, that Jesus is sitting there and is sort of lying there because that's how they did it on low couches. The Apostle John is on his right hand and they lay on this side so John could turn and talk to Jesus easily and he does in this meal. Peter, it seems, is sitting opposite And people think that Judas is right on Jesus' left, which was the most prized seat in the house. Judas stands as a massive warning. You might have the best seat in the house, church-wise. You might be there. You might have your feet washed. But Judas is not the Lord's. He stands as a massive warning that attendance isn't what saves us. It's not good enough to just come to a meeting and think that will be be enough. In fact, that's all Judas had ever done, attended. God wants the heart. That's what he wants. It's great that you're here this morning. We're delighted that you're here. We're thrilled that you're here. But you must understand, this isn't what's going to get you into heaven, sitting here this morning, and even hearing the word of God. It's your heart that God wants. So Judas stands as a warning. So don't be fooled. Peter says, when he writes his letter, he says, make your courting and election sure. You know, the disciples all said, well, is it me? Is it me? And we're to look to ourselves and we're to press on and trust the Lord for ourselves. But don't be fooled. Don't think just because you're here, that's enough. God wants the heart. He wants you. Now I'm going to get into the heart of what I want to talk about, which is our third point, which I've called the propitiation of the Passover. Now, Before I commence this, I want to say this. Um, This next bit that I'm going to preach to you about, I've never ever preached like this before in all my life. But this has been impressed upon me to do what I'm going to do in this way. And there's a danger that I could appear very patronising this morning. And I don't want to do that. This next bit is very basic in a way. I'm going to deal with some very basic things. But I don't mean to patronise you at all. What I am conscious of is that just because you know something doesn't necessarily mean the person next to you knows the same things. And I think it's easy for us to assume that people understand what we're talking about, especially when we use religious words and 
Someone will accuse me of using a religious word here this morning, which we're going to get to shortly. So, for this little bit, I've got six questions to answer, to try and help us to get under the bonnet, if you like, of what this is really all about. When Jesus says, in this Passover meal, he takes the bread and breaks it and says, this is my body, and then he takes this cup and they drink it, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant. What are we talking about? Six questions. Uh, Simple questions in a way. The first one, what is a covenant? (laughs) It's not a word you probably use in everyday life. Some people would use it, perhaps, but it's a religious word, it's a jargon word. What is a covenant? A covenant is simply a binding agreement between two parties. Two parties agree on a certain matter and they put terms and conditions upon that. Now, understanding covenants is important in knowing the Bible because the whole Bible is based on covenants, because covenants is how God deals with men. So to understand the Old Testament, it's helpful if you understand the covenants. But it's enough for you to know it's an agreement between two parties. And the two questions to ask about any covenant is, who's the covenant between, and what are the terms and conditions? It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. This is the blood of the covenant. And in Luke's gospel, it's put slightly different. It says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new covenant. And so we need to ask, well, actually, what was the old one? If this is the new one, what's the old one? The old covenant... In the, in the Old Testament, there are uh, at least five covenants. But what we call the Old Covenant is the covenant with Israel that was made through Moses at Mount Sinai. The covenant starts in the book of Exodus and it covers the whole of the Old Testament. And that covenant was about God's people keeping God's law. So if you say, who are the two people? Who are the parties? It was God. And Israel as a nation. What were the conditions? God said, if you keep my law, I'll bless you. If you don't keep it, I'm going to judge you. And the people of Israel said, that's a good deal. We'll agree to that. And they say, and I quote, everything that you say, we will do. That was the deal. Israel keeps God's law. God blesses them. They don't keep his law, God judges them. And you all know how that covenant ends. Because it is about to end. It's going to end within 24 hours of Mark 14. As they enter this upper room, the old covenant is still in place. By the end time they come out, actually, it's on its way out. The fact is that was a covenant of works. It was a covenant about what people do. And the problem with it was 
And what it showed was that people just couldn't keep God's law. And being a Christian, you know, is not just about keeping God's law. Because if that's what you're trying to do, you can't do it. And Israel showed that. That's the old covenant. It was a covenant of what we call works. What you do, you've got to do stuff. Well, this is the new covenant. What is the new covenant? Well, why is it new? Well, it's new because it's not old. (laughs) It's new because it's different. It's not the same. Um, it's, It's new because it's now being revealed and introduced. That old covenant with Israel was going to disappear out the door and it was being replaced with a new one. But it's not entirely new. If, uh, if I go back to my car analogy, I don't know how many here have got one of these brand new super duper, super efficient engines. I know there was a Vauxhall car they produced, uh, I think a year ago, and they said it did 185 miles to the gallon. You know, I'd like a car that did 185 miles to the gallon, right? There's some good stuff under the bonnet in that one, isn't there? Now, if I said to you, if I got that Vauxhall car out here and I said to you, when was that car designed? Well, you'd say, well, okay, it was produced last year. It must have been 2015 or something like that. Because that's a new car. Now, let me tell you, the um, first ever production car or first car produced was produced in 1807 by a Frenchman that I can't remember his name. I do know that the first production car was produced in 1886 by a man called Carl Benz. That might sound familiar, right? So if I said to you, my brand new Vauxhall car was designed in 1550, what would you say? That's crazy. But actually, that's how this new covenant is. This is a new covenant that's being introduced. But it's not new in terms of its design. Because this new covenant was actually designed before the world began. Before the world began. And in fact, it's based, this new covenant is based upon the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's based upon what people would call a covenant between the Father and the Son and the Spirit of God. And in this new covenant, Jesus Christ acts as a mediator between God and men to bring us into a relationship with him through faith. Now, let me just talk a little bit for a moment about this covenant that was designed years ago. I said it's based upon a relationship, a covenant between the Father and the Son. And this isn't specified exactly in Scripture, but it's hinted at. Just listen to these words. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Do you get that? All the Father gives me will come to me. The Father has given some people to his Son. Jesus prays just after this supper. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, 
God has arranged to give a people to his son. And the psalmist said, ask of me, I'll surely give the nations as your inheritance. When did all this get worked out? Ephesians 1 tells us, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Do you get this? There's an arrangement between the Father and the Son. The Father says, I'll give you these people. And the Son says, I will go and live their life and die their death to pay for their sins and bring them back to you. And the Spirit of God is the one who makes that effective. The believers' names are written in the Lamb's book of life. When were they written? They were written from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. Do you get this? Before Genesis 1-1, you were in the heart and mind of God, and God had a plan. You see, we have a new covenant. What you mustn't ever think is that, ah, This new covenant's an afterthought. The old covenant failed, and so God's got to do something different. No. No. God has one big plan. The old covenant was just a step on that plan to show us that we can't save ourselves. But the plan was that God would bring his people to himself. There was this covenant, and we read of the Lord Jesus. He was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. From before time began, God planned to send him. Peter says the same thing. He says, you're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. So when Jesus came, he came to do the Father's will. And in doing the Father's will, God the Father would give him a people. That's why the gospel will be made a blessing. People will be saved because this is God's way of working. And this new covenant is not about what we do. The person who's done it is the Lord Jesus. He's lived that life and he's died that death. And this is what Paul says to the Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Isn't this fantastic? This is this new covenant that we enter into by faith in the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus brings us to God because um, he's interceded for us. Uh, Three more questions. What is the blood of the covenant? How important is that? Uh, Paul emphasised this in Corinthians. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
If you read Hebrews 9, and I think I'll put the reference in your notes, uh, it says there, where there's a covenant, there must be the death of the person um, of the one who made it. Um, Because it's only valid when the person's dead, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The Old Testament is full of those blood sacrifices. But they could never deal with sins. But according to the law we can say almost all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And the problem is, the wages of sin is death, therefore, where there's sin, somebody has to die. And what the blood signifies is the life is poured out, a life is given. That's why this blood is important. Without the shedding of blood, we can't be forgiven. But let me stop for a moment. This is Mark 14. This is a Passover meal. What is this about? Again, um, I don't mean to be patronising. Most of you will know these things. But the Passover is about God bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. The night he brought them out, they had to take a lamb. They had to kill it and put the blood on the doorpost. And that night, the angel of death from God, sent in judgment, went through the camp. And where there was blood on the door, the angel passed over the people. But where there was no blood, there was judgment. So it's the story of redemption of God's people from Egypt. It's about deliverance. And it's about this lamb, this spotless lamb. That's take an unblemished lamb and put this blood on the doorpost. And the angel of death passed over. So the Passover was about remembering the fact they were rescued and how they were rescued. And in Mark 14... Jesus takes this and as he's taking the Passover bread, the unleavened bread, he says, take it, this is my body. And then he takes the cup, the Passover wine cup, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant or the new covenant. Jesus takes this Passover and applies it to himself and he says to his disciples I'm the Passover I'm the one that this is all about and when Paul writes to the Corinthians in his first letter chapter 5 he says Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us but Jesus applies it to himself right let me pull all this together with my last question Propitiation. What a weird word to be using on a Sunday morning. What has this got to do with it? And what on earth does it mean? Um, I'm really disappointed that the NIV translation does not put the word propitiation in. It actually replaces it with a phrase called atoning sacrifice. And I don't feel that's quite as strong. But propitiation is one of the most important words in our Bibles. 
is one of the most important things for you to understand if you are a Christian. You really need to understand what this word means. You can forget the word, but you've got to remember what this means because it's absolutely critical. This is what Paul says in Romans 3. He says, speaking about the Lord Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What does propitiation mean? It means to satisfy the holiness and justice of God such that God's wrath is turned away from us. As sinners, we all deserve God's wrath. But what Jesus did when he went to the cross, he stood there and God's wrath landed on him. He bore my sin in his body on the tree. We had it at the start of the meeting. He was smitten by God. God smashed him. He crushed him. God put his wrath on the Lord Jesus, this innocent man, the one who knew no sin, became sin for me, for you. My sins were put on him and he took the full brunt of God's wrath. He took it all. And you know what happened on that cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus was taking the punishment of God in our place. This is the new covenant. It's not about what I do. It's simply believing in what Jesus has done. And in sheltering me from that wrath, God's wrath passes over me. And in that Passover in Egypt, the only safe house to be was a house that had the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost. If you were there, you were safe. If you weren't, you were under judgment and death struck every house in Egypt that night. And today, if you are sheltering and trusting in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Brothers and sisters, you are safe. God's judgment will pass over you because it's already been taken. He died in my place. I go free because I deserve it. No, I'm as messed up as you. Because we're all messed up, aren't we? But Jesus did it and he sets me free. He is the propitiation for my sins. You can forget the word, but don't ever forget. In the Lord Jesus, God turns his wrath away from you. God's justice is fully satisfied. Deliverance from divine wrath necessitates the death of an innocent substitute. And praise God, the Lord Jesus was that spotless lamb 
He had no sin. He knew no sin. He did no sin. But he became sin for all those who believe in him. So, what a glorious thing that Passover was. We're told this. Jesus has become a high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. John writes in his first letter, he is the propitiation of our sins and not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world, for all those who believe anywhere. And the glory of the gospel is that God himself provides the means for his wrath against sin to be turned away from us. He's both just and the justifier. God is the one who sets the demands, but he's the one who sends his son to meet his own standards. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How wonderful this is. We have peace with God if we trust in the Lord Jesus. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? No condemnation. These are legal terms. These are legal terms. This is God's law court. Legally, we are exonerated. Legally, the debt has been paid. The justice has been meted out. The bill has been paid. We are free. We are not condemned because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. My last little point is anticipation. If you want a pea, I put promise. It's lovely how Jesus ends this, isn't it? Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. It says, I drink it new in the kingdom of God here. In Matthew it says, drink it new with you. What a fantastic promise this is to these disciples. They're all going to be shattered within the next 24 hours, mentally and all sorts of ways. They're not going to get their heads around what God is doing. But actually they've got this promise. The Lord Jesus is going to drink a cup with these disciples new in the future. Uh, Paul reminds us in Corinthians, you know, that uh, when we break bread, as we're going to shortly, we only do it until he comes. Because we're going to see him. We're going to have the real thing. We're going to see him. We're going to be with him. And I say anticipation. Because Christian, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to get there. There is nothing on earth that can stop you. There's nothing in heaven that can stop you. There's nothing anywhere that can stop you getting to where God wants you to be. Paul says in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God. If we are in Christ, if we've trusted Christ, 
we have a glorious, glorious future. Because it's not dependent on me. It's all dependent on God and the Lord Jesus Christ and his work that he's done. I love what um, John says to his disciples. I put a little wow in your notes. Because this gives me a thrill. This thrills my heart. This is just staggering to me. Jesus says in John 14, uh, verse uh, 23, he says, where I am, he says, I'm going to go away and prepare a place. I'm going to come again, receive you to myself. And this is the bit, that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that fantastic? We're going to sit down with the Lord Jesus Christ. Where he is, we're going to be with him. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so they may see my glory. How wonderful. How wonderful. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Someone will ask, well, how do I know if my name's there? I'll tell you how you know. You put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You trust him. Your name is there. Because that's the gospel. Believe. Come to me and believe and trust. Your name will be there. Paul says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Christ turns this meal into a Passover all about himself. Is the Lord Jesus Christ your Passover? I think that's the key question for you and me. Amen.